You are listening to audio from the church at Junius Heights. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, thechurchatjuniusheights.org. Sometimes I find it hard on Sundays when engaging the text. I find it, I find it challenging to look at the text and apply it and not leave us with a, a list of things we should do and shouldn't do. Um, I look at the, the text and I look at the scriptures and I go, man, I want us to see Christ. And so many times I look at it and go, this is who we're not. This is who we should be. This is the things the church is doing that, that, that our church isn't yet. And, and I never want us to leave time in God's word feeling some sort of like weird pressure or some sort of behavior modification that's supposed to be how we act out the days when we leave. The, the hope is for us to see Christ, for us to behold him in his word. And as I reflected on last week, and last week, if you weren't here, we taught about the power of the Holy Spirit in the church, that when the spirit of God empowers the believers, there's a difference in the way that we walk and a difference in the way that we act and a difference in the way we move into brokenness and conflict and, and sin and the reality of the world. We move differently. And I, I looked at the text and I thought about what I said and And while, yes, the church is supposed to be power-filled, we're supposed to have the aroma and the evidences of Christ in us, the goal is not to just be power-filled. The end goal from the word and the end goal from time together as a church is to behold Jesus, to see him, to see the text, and that it pushes glory to him, and we understand him more fully and more clearly, and the truth of who he is is our source. It becomes our strength. If you read Psalm 118, above that, it says the Lord, our God, is our strength. He is the one. And so sometimes it's easy to sort of meander off into things that are tertiary or secondary. Yes, the church is supposed to be a powerful church, but not by any other means in Christ alone not by any other means than for us to behold him, to know him, to receive more of him, and then we leave as him. That's the goal. That's the purpose of the text and preaching and time together. And, and he is unsearchable, right? He is limitless. Every time we teach, every time we read the scriptures, every time we do a personal study in the word, every time we do a small group, there's more of him to discover. Colossians 1.15, he's the visible image of the invisible God. He's the creator, the author of all of life. Through him, all things are created. So every time we get together around the scriptures, there's more of him for us to behold, more of him for us to take in, more of him for us to discover and understand. And so he's the goal in time together. And if I, I ever missed that on a Sunday, I'm inviting you right now to let me know, hey, Trav, you missed it. Help us to see him. That's your job. And that's what I want for us today is for us to see him. Because the church can't be the church that reaches out and snatches people from death to life. We can't be the church that seeks and saves the lost. We can't be the church that's filled with power that the world looks at and goes, what? If we've not been with him. If we are not like him in the way that we are, the body of Christ The world can't touch and feel that. We become the expression of Christ Jesus. A God that the world can't see is imaginary. It's it's faith and blind, and I'm not gonna do it, but when they feel him, 
by our compassion and our presence, when they feel him by our change of trajectory and the way we stop in the middle of a day and turn and engage and look, when we feel him by our love, he becomes real. And so we have to behold him. And so today, today we look at Acts chapter four. If you're guest or new, we're going through the book of Acts because we're a new church and the Acts of the Apostles is the book of Acts and we're a new church kind of going forward. And we're hopefully looking at that going, okay, God, that's a great baseline. How do we do things like they did? How do we love you like they did? How do we know you like they did? So we're looking at the book of Acts and we're gonna see a church emboldened. Chapter four, the word bold comes up three different times and we're gonna see this church that has this brazen forwardness about them, but that forwardness, that boldness has one source. And it's not a source that can be manuf- we can't manufacture it. They, the church didn't manufacture it. It wasn't contrived. It wasn't white-knuckled and put out because they knew they had to. It was ferociously brave and steady and forward-moving because of Christ in them. And this whole time, they're covered in a humility that wraps around this boldness that only someone who is ultimately forward and ultimately strong and ultimately humble can give to somebody, Christ Jesus, the source. And so let's engage the text expecting God to show us himself. Let's look at it with different eyes today, with different expectations, and with the, with the hope that we understand him more fully and he's more real to us, and then we can go be more real to the world around us. And so go to Acts chapter four, and I'd love to read every single word of it. I, I encourage you to. We're gonna read chapter four, verses eight through 13. And so just like Sam talked about, uh, and if you don't know Pastor Sam, Pastor Sam is the senior pastor. He's the guy who set this whole thing in motion. At the beginning, God called him and then he invited me to come and be lead pastor. And so we work together. If you don't know Sam, Sam is precious. Right now, Sam is playing worship for the kids downstairs. Talk about a servant, that's Pastor Sam. But like he said, we're gonna stand in honor of reading God's word. So turn to Acts 4 and please stand and I will read God's word and we'll follow along. At the end of it, we'll say, thanks be to God. At Acts chapter 4, 8, through 13. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means is this man healed? Well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven being given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, and now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the storyline that sort of precedes this is, the storyline that precedes this is there's a guy sitting by the beautiful gate, the gate called Beautiful, at the outside of the temple, and Peter and John are filled with the Holy Spirit, 
and they're going to worship and going to probably engage with the truth of the gospel. And they walk past this guy who's crippled, who's laying on a mat and he's begging for some money because that's the only solution he thought he had is to have some money to buy some stuff, food, and then keep on going the next day and being put on the mat. He was broken from birth. And they walk past him, they look at him, he looks at them and they, they, they heal him in the name of Christ Jesus, which is kind of wild and crazy and supernatural, but it happens not just Back in the day, it happens today, not a lot in the West, but it happens all over the world. People with the power of God see brokenness and they engage it and God decides to heal in the moment. It happens. And this guy gets healed in the moment and uh, people see this and are confounded. They run to Peter and John and want to understand how and who and why. And 3,000 people get saved that day. Then 2,000 more to the 3,000. There's 5,000 people now that believe because they see the works of these apostles. And so they're preaching and teaching in verse, look back in verse chapter two. They were speaking to all these people and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were communicating, hey, this is, this is what he does. He rose from the dead, you killed him, but he is now risen. And they were communicating this over and over and over and over and over again. And that day, 2,000 people come to Christ into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, there was a ton of resistance though. The, they were annoyed, greatly annoyed. In verse three, they arrested him. The next day, they arrested both Peter and John and put him in jail. And on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, who were all in the high priestly family. If you do a quick word search of Caiaphas, Caiaphas was in Mark chapter 26 that was part of putting Jesus to death. So think about the audience that Peter and John now have. A church that is bold, standing before the same people who weeks before executed Christ, they're looking him in the face fearless, the same people that put Christ to death are these people they're standing before right now. And, and, and Peter goes, you crucified him. It was you, you did it. But God raised him from the dead, you. The same guards that whipped Jesus, the same people who mocked him and spit on him, they're all there. Same audience, but these guys now, steady forward, focused, strong, clear, engaging them with the truth of the resurrection. And we keep going down in verse 13. We saw this, this whole thing kind of plays out where they're confounded. The rulers, the chief priests, they throw them in jail. They say, don't do that. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't preach in his name. Don't teach in his name. And, and they, they don't do that. And, and they don't know what to do because they've never seen such courage, such boldness, such power. And so they gather together and they leave them in jail and they're talking about what do we do about these guys? How do we handle them? I don't, I don't really know what we do. And so they're, they're confounded and they said, oh, they're uncommon men. And they've obviously been with Jesus. There's no other explanation than that. And all they can do as you read the storyline is they say, you know what, uh, stop doing that. And they harass them some more and they, they let them go free. But, but this place where they are harassed and they're told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. 19 and 20, said, Peter says, what is right in the sight of God? You gotta decide. But only we can speak of what we have seen and heard. And they kept testifying to the resurrection. And so the, the, 
Acts 4 is sort of in two buckets. This first bucket of persecution and arrest and them powerfully standing before them. And I, I wanna draw out kind of three applications for us. And there are many, and we could belabor this for hours. But the first one, in verse two, and you follow all the way down, in verse 12, they're preaching the resurrection. Their message was catalyzed. It was empowered by the resurrection of Christ. They proclaimed that in Jesus, you have the resurrection from the dead. They resoundingly over and over and over again, this is what they're saying. They're not saying you crucified him and he died for our sins and that's it. They're saying he's alive. This is the anchor point of the Christian faith. This is it. If he stays in the ground, while we may have had our sins covered, where's our hope? If he stays in the ground, then many of us will try to get overseas once in a lifetime to go to the grave of Jesus, the one man who died for our sin. But nobody does that because he didn't stay dead. This is the linchpin. This is what finishes it off because sin doesn't win. If you read Romans, the wages of sin is death. And, and so sin moves us into death and death is the evidence of sin. But Jesus overcame sin and we see it absolutely. Amen, absolutely. We see that because he didn't stay dead. And all of us are going that route, whether we're closer or farther away, we don't really know. If you're older or younger, you still could have the same timeline until we end up in the grave. However, Jesus didn't stay dead. The resurrection is what they preach over and over and over again. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. If you don't believe this, if this is not an anchor point to what you hope in, then maybe you're not a, you're not a Christian because this is our hope. And this is hard because it seems kind of far off. And I don't know if any of us have seen anybody like Peter and John had who'd been raised from the dead. But we believe this by faith because no one has stopped talking about it. 2,000 years later, this is what we talk about. Jesus didn't stay dead. This is the anchor point. So I want you to move to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because Paul makes an effort to really clarify this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's to the right. Just a, a few chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'd love for you to take this home and go, you know what, we preached about this, talked about this. I'm gonna go home and read all of 15 later on because 15 goes further into the reality of the resurrection. But 15, looking at verse 12, follow along with me if you will. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can, you, some, of, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? How can some of us in this room doubt and go, I don't think so, if people still talk about him? Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And our faith is in vain. This time together is in vain. Doesn't matter. 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he is raised from the dead, whom he did not, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul has some complicated linguistic techniques where he sort of chops it up. He's saying he is risen. And if we, we don't believe this, if it's not true, then we've missed it altogether. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we're to be pitied among all people, above all people. And I'm guilty of hanging on to life here. I'm guilty of hanging on to the good things in life and the fun and the adventures. And like, I didn't want Christ to come back until I got married for obvious reasons. I didn't want Christ to come back until I had kids. Like there's some things that I just like, I, I, I don't wanna miss out on. Because this life oftentimes sort of rises up as all there is and all I hope for and all I think about. Comfort and the dreams I have to build a shed in the backyard. I fall asleep sometimes thinking about, I wanna build a shed for my tools in the backyard. This life is not all there is. And that's a waste of thinking if it goes all day long. And we do this as believers. We spend so much energy on this life and, and we forget that this is not all there is. This is our great hope. This is fractional, this window that we're in. Verse 18, we have no hope. We're to be most pitied. And that text is really strange. If we are believers who don't believe in the resurrection, then people should look at us like, oh, I'm so sorry that your life is totally wasted. Your hope is totally wasted. Your thinking, your energy, all of your plans, all of your Sunday rhythms, all of the money you put in the box, it's all totally worthless. Oh, look at those folks. But if Christ is raised from the dead, everything matters. If he's raised from the dead, then all of it matters. It matters absolutely. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Church, they preached and taught this primarily. Is this the thing that rolls off our tongue the most? Is this the thing that we're just so anchored to? Golly, I wonder if they know that when they die, they don't stay dead or they could. I wonder if that guy at the table, hey, excuse me, I know you're having dinner with your family. Uh, I was just wondering, I felt like God told me to ask you, do you or do you not think that death is the end? If you do, well, great, how do you know? Let me tell you about Jesus. But so often it's like the word profane in some definitions is to be made low, to bring down, to profane something. And, and I feel like I'm guilty sometimes of profaning the truth of the resurrection by bringing it low, that it's not the, the, the tip top of what I'm trying to get people to understand about Christianity and Jesus. Death doesn't win. And I, this acutely set in last night. I went to the 40th birthday party for one of my, my best friends from growing up. I was best man in his wedding. And man, Kyle's dad was a great dad. Uh, he filled in a lot of spaces where my dad sort of ran short. Kyle's dad was amazing. And Kyle's dad passed away this, this year um, in October. And so I go to Kyle's birthday party and it's an office-themed birthday party and everybody's quoting The Office and being ridiculous and talking about Jim Halperin and uh, it was fun, but I could see a heaviness on my friend Kyle and I'm leaving, I give him a hug and I'm leaving and he kind of pulls me aside and he goes, man, today was really terrible. It's the first day that my dad, um, it's the first day my, my dad hasn't called me on my birthday and I've, he's been at every milestone. And then he said, man, this makes me love the fact that the resurrection is true. It means so much more to me to think about that this is not it. In the midst of his sorrow, there was this hope that undergirded the feelings. And church, we have to feel grief in the face of sin and death. We have to feel the loss. I mean, Lakewood Elementary lost a six-year-old first grader. 
And we have to feel that because that is terrible. It hurts. We should mourn the loss of the things that we long for, the people that we've loved. But in 1 Thessalonians, we don't grieve like other people do. And oftentimes the church will just run straight to this and not be present in their emotions and that's not healthy. But when we live in the moment and recognize, golly, this is really, really, really sad. And I'm sad. I don't, I don't grieve like people who have no hope. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter four. It's a few more chapters to the right. Paul is writing to the church. He's going, church, I don't want you to be uninformed, verse 13. I don't want you to not to know this. This is critical. You gotta get this through your skull. Verse 13, don't be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Even the scriptures uses a language like temporary, the death for the believer is like a sleep. But then on the day that Christ returns, he calls us up. And there's a whole scriptures full, it's a whole chapter in Thessalonians full of what this looks like, how it's gonna play out. And the hope doesn't just be kind of euphoric in general. It gets real specific. We get new bodies and we get to be with Christ in heaven. There's eating and drinking and celebration and worship and purpose and jobs. There's a, a whole hope in heaven that we have because Christ didn't stay dead. This is what this early church was emboldened to preach about. But they're, they're emboldened because Christ, who we look to and worship on Sundays, rose from the grave. Do you believe this? If you believe this, then while we grieve the loss of people that we love and we, we don't make death flippant and don't look at it with indifference, we do have hope that anchors our feet. Do you believe this? Yes. The second application from this space that they were in, Peter and Paul engaging the religious leaders, they walked past a guy who was broken and they stopped. They saw infirmity in his bones and in his eyes and they stopped. They were aware and concerned about the brokenness in the world and they moved forward into it. Their boldness was activating. It was, it, was, it was forward thinking. Their boldness had them engage and they were obedient. And what they did, they saw this guy and they thought, what would Jesus do? How did he do it when he was here? And they stopped. They said, hey, and they looked at him and they touched him. All the things that Jesus had this rhythm of personally connecting in the realest way, touched him, engaged him and raised him up. And, he, and he, his legs started working again. This is what Jesus did. They thought, you know what? We'll do the same thing. And when the church engages brokenness like this, the attention of the world is captured. And it doesn't have to be, we have to heal people on the street. It has to be way different in general for your context. How do we engage brokenness? How do I engage brokenness? Where do I see it? And how do I step forward into it? Our movement towards brokenness captivates the world. And like we said at the beginning, it makes Christ real intangible. They look at him and go, they look at us and go, he's fearless. He's compassionate. He's heartbroken. He does something about sin and injustice. He, he doesn't stop when he sees people on the side of the road. He slows down and 
figures out how he can contribute. This is what Jesus does. And when the world sees us, it captivates. It brings resistance. These guys got thrown in jail, but it also brought salvation. It brought tons of resistance. They got thrown in jail. And then this wasn't the beginning. Chapter five, they're all, they went and arrest all of the disciples, not just the two. This brings much resistance from culture, but it also brings salvation. It also brings peace and hope. The people who are needy, we get to be the ones that are on the hands and feet of Christ. And this feels like it keeps coming up in the text, but what is our sensitivity to brokenness? As the church, as the church here at Junius Heights, what is our sensitivity? What do we do? Are we so busy that we just can't slow down for a hot second to, to listen and care and give or serve, like pray? Sometimes God asks for your entire day. Sometimes he asks for 40 seconds of your prayer life. What is our attention to brokenness? It's, it's easy to be in culture and the numbness towards brokenness, just, uh, it just feels like it happens every day. From the shows we watch that I recommend to people to watch, <laughs> I mean, there's brokenness everywhere that we just sort of treat as normal. And, and we can have different eyes. I find myself desensitized to violence, to vulgarity, to sexuality that's distorted and broken. I find myself desensitized to greed and pride it's just the way the culture is. I find myself desensitized to busyness, that this is almost like a badge of honor. You got a lot to do. You must be important. And it's not just brokenness of people who are crippled and sick. And even that sometimes. How often do we weep when we hear people, my grandmother's sick. Well, everybody says their grandma's sick. Pray for my aunt. Everybody says my, my aunt has, needs to be prayed for. But do we slow down and go, golly, I wonder if their aunt discipled them. Golly, like I wonder if the, the ants that in for mom whenever mom had cancer, golly, I, I, I wonder how serious that prayer request really is. The things that, that I feel like I'm desensitized to, Jesus was heartbroken for. Think about the women that he slowed down that were caught in sexual sin. He was heartbroken for that. The greed and the pride, he was heartbroken. He wept. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus saw the brokenness and the rejection of God that they said, no, we don't want you. Are we heartbroken to move into that space? These guys in the text and Acts, they move into it ferociously, fearlessly. And, and this Sunday is a, a unique Sunday position in American culture. There's two definitive, very definitive markers that were within 10 days of today. There's Martin Luther King Day, and then there's the anniversary, which I, I hate that word, the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision where abortion's legalized. I heard a statistic that 61 million babies have been aborted since 1973. These guys engaged the political elite. And this week is so often a space where pastors jump off of their sermon series and they do a cultural specific kind of sermon and, and and oftentimes it can be, oh, maybe we shouldn't talk about that, Pastor. It can be politicized or uh, uh, opinionated. But God gives us a real clarity in his word, a worldview that is clear about the, the image bearers that he has created. In his image, he created them. He gives us a worldview that loves the Imago Dei in people and sees people rightly as he does. 
that the gospel is for everyone who he has created with different nationalities and skin colors and socioeconomic backgrounds, every little baby that is in his image, the Bible makes it really clear how desperately he loves them. And for us to be a people who engages, we first have to have the gospel. If we don't look at this and go, he's risen and he's risen, he died and he's risen for everyone who's ever walked this earth, he loved them. So we get to move into those places with boldness. And sometimes it means we go on marches. Sometimes it means we speak up in an office conversation. Sometimes it means we speak up in our living room. Sometimes it means that we pray and ask God to give us new eyes to see what we don't understand. Maybe sometimes it slows us down. But if we have this anchor point as the resurrection, the gospel, we look at culture and engage it differently. And these guys do that. They engage the ruling governmental elite and they speak to it. But it's only through the gospel and Christ in them that they do it. They don't do it out of their own opinion. They don't do it from some sort of affiliation. They look and go, Jesus, what do you think about this? How do you care about this? And how do I care about it like you care about it? And they move forward. They're bold to engage the culture and the brokenness. And the third application sort of in this space would be in verse 13. The ruling elite couldn't do anything. They were stuck because 5,000 people were so excited about what God has done in healing this dude. They couldn't, they couldn't do anything because the people, 5,000 people were kind of excited about these two guys. And so they let him go. And they said that he must have been with Jesus. They know, they could tell. But how could they tell? What was it about these guys in the middle of the courtroom in front of all of them that made it really clear that they'd been with Jesus? How do they know? Well, these guys did the works that Jesus did. Are any of you, are any of you like in the church going, where are the things that Jesus did in our church? In the church in the West, where are the things he did? Any of you go, hold on, I read this and then I, and I look at the church and I go, man, we just sort of sit around and try to figure out how to do it with our money. Where's the works that Jesus did? How did these guys know they'd been with Jesus? Because of the works they did. It says in John 14, 12, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these they will do. These people were people of the way. Some theologians say the early church were either named and called the people of the way or people of the life. And everybody looked at them and thought, they're different. They do things that Jesus did that we can't do, but if they're with Jesus, they can do them. This was how they defined the people of the way. They'd been with Jesus. And this is what happens. With three years rolling around with Jesus every day, you become like him, you think like him, you operate like him, you believe like him, you read like him, you pray like him, you just do stuff differently. I've been around Pastor George for six months. And Pastor George says, hallelujah. Whenever he praises, hallelujah. And he has his J inside the hallelujah. Then whenever I think about praying, I want to say hallelujah. Just because I've been around him for a little bit. He's rubbing off on me and I don't speak any Spanish, but he's rubbing off on me. He's, he's, I'm becoming a little bit like him. And when we're with Jesus, we become a little bit like him. Time with Jesus breaks loose the nature of Christ in our lives. We start to think like he does, know what he would know, do what he would do, go where he would go. And in moments where we wanna make decisions like he would make, his Holy Spirit gives us that little oomph over the hill to say or be present to don't do things we normally would do. With Jesus empowers us. And this was discipled, and, and many of us have not been discipled to know how it is to follow Jesus. 
If you've not been discipled, then you should let us know. There are people in the church here now who know how to disciple, how to show you how to be with Jesus so you can walk like him and talk like him and be empowered by him. We wanna be a church, if you look at our mission statement on the back of your thing, who makes disciples. And so if you long for, need, never been, want to be discipled, you should put that on the card and let us know so we can teach you how to be with Jesus so that you can go be like Jesus. So the storyline continues. These same guys who executed Christ, they let him go. And it's funny how specific scripture is. The guy was 40 years old. If you go back to Acts chapter four, and and we're towards the end of the sermon, Acts chapter four, if you look at um, verse 22, he was 40. I turned 40 in four days, three days, two days, four days, three days, three days. The mind goes around then. It's starting to go away, you know? This guy was 40. He laid on the side of the road with broken legs for all of his life. And then at 40, he's evidentially different. God can make us evidentially different whatever age you are. Whatever age you are, whatever season of life you're in, in a moment, in a weekend, he can make you different and turn you into this power-filled mission-focused kingdom of God, man or woman. So they go back. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, well, when they were released, they went back to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And they all heard it. They lifted their voices together to God and they said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and everything in them. And they roll out this sort of worship and prayer time. They went back to their friends They went back to the fellowship, the brotherhood, the sisterhood. They went back together. They did this. And they remembered who Jesus was and what he said and how he accomplished these things. They went back together and they worshiped. They prayed. They read the scriptures. They went together to be with Jesus. They kept going back to him. They asked him for more boldness. If you keep following down, they asked for more boldness in verse 31. Well, actually, 29 and 30 and 31, they asked for more boldness and they prayed together and something happened. And we prayed about this this morning in our prayer time, that the presence of God descended, the building shook, and they were given more boldness to go back out. What if our gatherings were like that? What if our togetherness on Sundays was like that? What if it was in small groups and in Sunday school classes or whatever we're gonna be doing? What if in your little accountability partnership groups, what if when we got back together, we prayed and remembered and read the scriptures and asked God for boldness and he gave it to us? And so we came back in telling stories to our friends. Guess what God did? Guess what God did? We were in jail, they were out of jail and they didn't beat us. And I told this guy straight to his face, you killed Jesus. And he was like, I didn't even know what to say. And it just came out of my mouth. I just told him, you killed him. And God protected us the whole time. And guess how many people got saved? 2,000. What if every time we gathered, we told stories of God's power in our lives? We would be lit up. We would ask for more boldness, more power, more of his presence. We'd be lit up to go back out and live the lives we were designed to live. It would be radical. And the kingdom would advance. Our lives would have deep and entrenched absolute purpose. Golly, I feel like, very little of my life I've gotten to live like that. Maybe we should ask him today that he would do it. But we first must behold the source, the one through whom all of this power and all of this grace and all this humility comes from. We must look at him and see that he has done it, he's risen, and he's with us. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna kind of shift gears to communion.
And in this sort of next little space and time together, we're gonna have folks that are on our prayer team that are in the back. And if God is working in you, if you've got something you feel like I just need help with, I don't understand, I, I need to process, I need somebody to pray over me, we're gonna be a church that asks God to do the things that we need him to do. And so there's gonna be folks in the back that wanna pray. So I'm gonna pray right now and then talk about communion and then we're gonna conclude our service with worship around the Lord's Supper. So Father in heaven, thank you that you sent your son Jesus. Thank you that we can read the text and go, wow, how could my life maybe be like that? There's no maybe, God. You have made it possible through your son Jesus that he is risen, he is with us. And so Lord, would we be people who believe that? Absolutely. And would you shift in us our hearts of boldness and brokenness and compassion and courage? Would you make us like you, please? We don't wanna be like ourselves. We want, you to be, we want to be like you. And so, Father, um, by your grace, we've spent time in your text and your word. And so, Lord Jesus, um, do what you're trying to do in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Amen.